Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Ready Room. I'm your host, Richard Frederick. And uh, first and foremost, I want to take this opportunity to wish everybody out there a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, um, and send my best wishes for a happy and successful new year for all of you. This will be the last episode of our first year ever in existence. Uh, And I think it'll be our 12th episode. So we got uh, one a month uh, as an average, and uh, that's not bad. I can tell you that it's been awesome. I'm looking forward to the next year, and my goal is to actually double that number, uh, if not more. I think that Chunks, our intrepid co-host, will be able to have a little bit more white space in his calendar, and we plan on doing a lot more of just our one-on-one conversations. And of course, I'm really looking forward to bringing you uh, more great talks with intriguing and inspirational folks from all walks of life. Uh, And with that, let me introduce today's guest. I am speaking with Lisa Anderson. Uh, Lisa is the director of the United Nations Commercial Air Travel Safety Unit, uh, which falls under the UN Department of Safety and Security. Uh, Essentially, what Lisa does uh, with her team is to evaluate commercial air operators throughout the world. Um, And then uh, they use metrics to determine their suitability to safely and reliably transport UN personnel. Uh, It's important to note that when Lisa was hired to take the position, the Commercial Air Travel Safety Unit didn't even exist. Uh, She was given guidance on what the UN wanted to implement, uh, but she built the program from the ground up, so pretty impressive. Lisa's story is a fascinating one. Uh, From her, her childhood in rural Kentucky, where expectations were set to a low bar, to her traveling the world as a private corporate pilot, Uh, Lisa took advantage of the many opportunities presented to her, and she worked hard to forge a successful career that seemed unlikely to her as a child. Uh, We talked a lot about her past and how her career path led her to where she is now, given the fact that she worked at TSA for a time as that organization was still taking shape. uh, We touched on travel security in general uh, and what we're willing to accept in terms of security measures and how those differ throughout the world. Lisa was a military spouse as well, and she really opened up about that experience uh, and the challenges that military couples face in maintaining relationships in the face of so much flux, uncertainty, and emotional burden. Yeah, I felt like we were just getting started when we ran out of time, and actually we ended up talking for almost another hour uh, after the studio interview ended, and, and that conversation was just as fascinating as our recorded interview, so I will definitely have to have her back on in the future uh, to tell the rest of the story, as it were. In any case, it was great to talk to her. I really hope you enjoy our conversation, and so without further ado, I give you Lisa Anderson. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, how was your Thanksgiving, by the way? I, was, I totally meant to ask that. When you come in. It was a lot of fun. I yeah. had my twin goddaughters. They're identical twins and their mom, and they're 12. Oh, nice. I've known them since they were six weeks old, and I wasn't prepared for 12. Was not prepared. But we had the exploding mashed potatoes and everything, you know, like when you're making mashed potatoes and you forget to plug in the 
the blender and then you plug it in and it goes everywhere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we had the exploding mashed potatoes. We had the full, the full Thanksgiving experience, including the Rockettes, which makes oh, me yeah. a total New Yorker now. No, that's great. Uh, you know, we saw the Rockettes two years ago. Me and my wife uh, took our kids, my whole family. We got an Airbnb in the city and we went mm-hmm. and saw the Rockettes. Well, everybody should do that. It's really a great show. I do it every year. Yeah. It's just a habit and they change it enough that it, it always is a little bit different yeah it's, it's pretty much uh, but, but you're tradition. still yeah it's, it's traditional so right. it's not like you know I, I yeah i hope they don't get too uh, progressive with the uh, rockets it would be no. um yeah it's but what a great yeah i always encourage people to see that when when christian came in today i was like hey how's your thanksgiving he said delicious and i was like yeah mine too <laughs> delicious <laughs> so yeah we didn't have the exploding mashed potatoes but it was family and you know, turkey and all that. Mm-hmm. Turkey stuffing and mashed potatoes, I think, are the three. And we had a big, we had a debate about what is, um, you know, what are the, what do you have to have to make it Thanksgiving? What do you have to have? Yeah. So I, I said that there's three at least: turkey stuffing and mashed potatoes. Oh. That that was my three. Uh, a lot of people argued that vegetable had to be there. I was like, which one though? Yeah, I would agree with the lumpy mashed potatoes though. It's got to uh, be the fresh yeah, one. Yeah, that's. Yeah, it has to be the, the fresh-made ones. Yeah. Um, every year until this year, I always did a turducken, which is a... It's very John Madden of you. Huh? Is it? Yeah, John Madden was always a turducken guy. Sorry, yeah. yeah <laughs> I've I, never made one. I found a butcher in uh, in the city that knew how to do it, and so he did it for me for about four, well, probably about five or six years. So if people don't know what it is, it's a, a, a turkey. Inside the turkey is stuffed with a... With a um, a chicken, and then inside that's the the duck. Where's the duck in the middle? Anyway, anyway, it's fabulous because the duck is really oily, and so when it cooks, it bastes it bastes both of the birds, and it gives you a lot of food for a very long time. I have never had one. I've heard of them forever, and I'm yeah. One of these days, I'll have to uh, I'll have to do that. But it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> but my butcher's gone, so alas, I had to get the regular. Ah, you live in the city. There's going to be plenty of them. Yeah, just... They're all over the place. Going around asking is yeah. get that, the, that, that stare. Amazing. <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Yeah. I'm sitting here drooling. Yeah. Well, duck fat is definitely good on pretty much you know old used tires. So it's <laughs> so funny. Yeah. No, you'll find another butcher. I mean, um, yeah. The city is that's one of the great things about living in the city. Uh, everything is there. You're from Kentucky, right? I am. Yeah. So let's, uh, because we've delved right in and started on Thanksgiving, I guess we should uh, remind everybody uh, exactly what it is you do. You're with the, you're with the United Nations, uh, the Department of Safety and Security. That's right. Right. Um, and I'll let you, I'll let you talk because you know you told me the story was fascinating about how you got there, but uh, you can, um, you know, talk about the actual office within the uh, DSS that you have and, and what they do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can share my experiences. I do have to say the caveat that anything that I say regarding the United Nations is not um, is solely my experience. <laughs> it is not necessarily sanctioned or approved, but um, um, I'm just going to tell you my experience. So um, um, I always wanted to fly airplanes, and um, I got started a little late in life, and I uh, became a pilot, and I flew for about seven years. Um, but what my flight instructor told me um, probably the wisest advice he ever gave me, he said, um, what are you going to do if you lose your medical? And at the time, I wasn't in, quite sure what he meant by that. And he says, you always have to have a backup plan if you're going to be a pilot. So I got my master's, degrees at, uh, master's degree at Nellis Air Force Base at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University. And um, 
And I thought, well, I'll just fall back on that. So I got it in aviation safety and then started flying for a while and and then uh, started a company. Um, and ultimately, I went back to Emory-Riddle. Emory-Riddle called and said, we have this executive MBA program and we've had no females go through. Would you be interested? And we, we need that female dynamic. And um, they helped me. I think I won about $40,000 in scholarships and grants and stuff to help me through it. So I thought, well, of course. Yeah. So I did that. And then I wanted to see, you know, what would happen if I didn't fly anymore and I just flew my degrees? What would that be like? And um, as um, God could only have it, I ended up going to Washington, D.C., getting a job right away with um, Homeland Security, working with a new agency called TSA to write policy for um, 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 general aviation airports. And TSA just was not ready for much of anything at that point in time. So I left there and um, ended up just – I found a niche in consulting – um, I looked at things a little differently because I hadn't been in the industry in the same way that others had, had been through their entire career. By this time, I'm already in um, my late 30s, and I have a different approach. And I looked at things very, very differently, and it turned out that I had a, a kind of a knack of solving complex aviation problems. They give me a problem and, and ask a what if, and it just kind of all came together for me. So I started consulting, did most of um, my work with the National Academy of the Sciences, there yeah and um and then i um i applied for a scholarship with ICAO, international yeah. civil aviation organization in montreal because i wanted to learn more about um international aviation and i was told um i did not receive the the scholarship but i went to, it was at women in aviation as a conference and i went to thank the lady for you know because when I saw who did win, th- these were the girls I needed to win. These were new newbies right out of college. And so, um, and then she said, um, what is your name? I told her my name, and she opened up a book, and my name was written at the top. Nothing else on the sheet of paper. And she goes, is this you? And I'm like, I don't know. What did she do? <laughs> <laughs> and so she says, um, I was told as she revealed herself that I could offer her the same. Um, however because you're experienced we're not going to pay your way like we we did with other um interns so they i paid my way i went through ikeo i went to ikeo i worked on two problems for them and um, they liked what i did and then they called and said the un has a complex aviation problem would you be willing to take a look at it i'm like sure do i have to pay for that too or <laughs> is this a pay or no pay and, and they're like nope you do it you know, just to look at it. So I, I talked to um, a gentleman over there. They told me what the problem was. And the problem was essentially how do you, um, looking at humanitarians, so um, United Nations worldwide, there's 54 agency funds and programs. We know them as like UNICEF or um, WFP, World Food Program. Um, there's 54 throughout. Um, how do you protect and ensure that our humanitarians, UN staff, are when they're the travel modalities that are selected for them to travel they're doing high risk work anyway how do you ensure that they don't how do you mitigate the risk of them being killed in their line of duty just trying to get there Um, how do you is there a way to assess air operators globally in which um, um, for humanitarian use noting that we were high risk anyway um, so I took a look at um, what they wanted to do. It had been vacant. A uh, post had been vacant for a very long time. So I just, I just, we just talked very much in generalities, that's all. 
And um, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, he wrote, um, he sent me a post and said, we posted this job. Um, um, I'll let you take a look at it. And I, I read it and I said, yes, I think this is exactly the type of person that you're looking for. Because actually that's all that they asked me is, you know, how do we define that person that, that could potentially solve this problem or at least help us with this? So, um, so I sent it back and said, yes, I, I think this, is, this would give you the candidates that you would want to to um to help solve this problem and then about a week later um, i got an email and said um by the way could you apply for this well i never looked at it for me <laughs> i was you know i was living in um dc i was a military spouse at the time and um i had my hands full with um that type of thing um and i said i reread it and i'm like yeah well yeah yeah, I think I can. So I went ahead and applied, and there was a, um, a um, you know, assessment, and I was selected, and then um, to to go in, and that's how it all started. And it was uh, renewable. It was um, six month contracts, temporary contracts, for a very very long time before I was ever regularized. So who hires for the UN? The UN, <laughs> we there's a, an HR department. What I mean is, it's the United Nations. Yep. The and so there's no. I mean, did you did you have to interview only with you know the American part of the UN or is I don't even you know I'm not really familiar with how the UN works mm-hmm. in terms of all that and so you know I always kind of think oh yeah the UN I mean who who, who governs them. Well, the UN does. So the UN, you're an international. So my actual title is international civil servant. Yeah. And so um, there's 193 countries that belong that are members to the UN, and um, they all want representation uh, of staffing. And so there are some under um, some countries that are underrepresented, and some that are over. You know, based on skill sets. And and it's it's an HR department, just like any other corporation. Yeah. That well, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Is the UN a corporation? Is that all? Is that? It's not a corporation. It's uh, it's <laughs> it's the. You see UN. where I'm getting at, right? Well, yeah, I'm, but you're asking me something. I'm, yeah, because when you said aviation. that, I was like, yeah. How do you how do you how do you get hired at the UN? And then, I mean, I'm sure there's HR, like you said. I was, yeah, there, there's a website. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're not, but they're not a corporation, but they're not a government. Um, you know, like an NGO, I guess, non-governmental organization, but. But not an NGO that falls under any one government's, you know, jurisdiction. Right. There's not an American classification yeah. per se yeah. of, of of it. Um, but you know, anyone can apply for the UN. There's there's a, a, a website. Uh, what's different though is you don't pl- apply necessarily with your resume like you do in America. You have to go in and create what's called a PHP. It's a um, personal history profile. Mm-hmm. And basically, you're transferring your resume to that. And that's what the UN goes back and, and looks at um, in order to to determine and hire. Yeah, that's just fascinating because I'm I'm sitting here like, yeah, who who oversees the UN? Who governs the UN? Well, nobody, just the UN. Well, the and member that, states govern us for the most, not necessarily govern us, but they're the ones who pay into us, and our jobs are, are to to help globally all the um, all of our member states and. Everything from the sustainable development. That's interesting. Goals so, to, so the, all of the different countries mm-hmm. have to jointly sort of oversee the UN. Is that is that how that works? Um, 
No, not necessarily. We're getting into a topic that I'm really not that familiar yeah. with, so yeah. I'm getting into well, I don't, I'm not either. Very so. difficult waters here. Maybe I'll have to look um, into it. Yeah. No. Well, as a matter of fact, when we when we were going to talk, and I was thinking, I was like, man, what do I know about the UN? Nothing, right? Um, you know, other than signs out in the desert where they're like, "Get us out of the UN," and I'm just like, "Okay, crazies." But you know, at the same time, I'm I'm just thinking, "Yeah, what do I know about the UN? I don't know much about the UN. I don't know how it works. Yeah, who governs it?" Um, and obviously, you know, you have your corner of the UN. It's like being part of any big organization, right? Where you're like, "Hey, I'm I'm here. I do this." Uh, you know, if you're going to ask me about what's going on at headquarters, I'm not going to be able to tell you. It's just like being in the Marine Corps, like, hey, I've got the Department of Safety and Standardization right here at MAG, whatever. Uh, I don't know what's going on at Manpower at headquarters. (laughs) The easiest way I explain it is I work for the Department of Safety and Security, and if you take an umbrella and invert it, the staff would be the secretary that we see in New York City. Yeah. That's that's the main staff. And then when you go up to the inverted umbrella, around it, you have all the different spires. Those represent the 54 different agency funds and programs. And those agency funds and programs are doing work that's been agreed upon by the member states. Yeah. So UNICEF is there with the children, education, and you've got UN Women, you've got um, UNDP for development, you've got UNESCO trying to provide preserve you know antiquities you know they've got a variety and doing education yeah. and science um, and what they do is they feed information of their work and their members you know around the world into the spire and it all comes down to the secretariat who then you know writes it all up and presents it over to the member states and i work for the department of safety and security and it's the only organization that is responsible for the entire umbrella so we are we answer to all of the agencies funds and programs as well who helps fund us as well our sole job is um protecting u.n staff yeah. worldwide safety and, and security yep well that makes sense completely I, I just have the commercial aviation piece of it yeah yeah that's so it's funny you, you start mentioning like unicef and unesco and i kind of forget oh yeah yeah those are u.n organizations i, I kind of forget about that you know you'll be traveling you're like oh this is a unesco world heritage site oh that's yeah that's pretty mm-hmm. cool you know and you're like what does that mean? Oh, yeah, that's the U.N. <laughs> They're the ones yeah. that designate that. Or UNICEF. And I remember, you know, UNICEF, I, when we were growing up, remember, I remember seeing the commercials for, like, UNICEF. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was like um, starving kids in Ethiopia or something like that. And you saw the UNICEF and the U.N. And, and, and I'm now, just now, as we're talking, putting that together, like, oh, yeah, those are all part of the U.N. Yeah. And, and the member states governing. So, obviously, neither of us kind of understand exactly how the the, the, <laughs> the governance of the UN goes but but yeah that makes complete sense so and yeah this Department of Safety and Security obviously would have to uh, you know um, encompass all of the different department departments mm-hmm. uh, so that that's cool that makes sense yep. um, you know you, you, you you said that you were at TSA for a while. Mm-hmm. So how was how was that? Mm-mm. <laughs> I mean, look, the bottom line, right? I'm just kind of sitting here like, yeah, again, I don't know much about TSA other than when I travel, I don't like them. <laughs> well, I had And no- I think everybody out there right now listening is like, yeah, TSA, golly. <laughs> I had nothing to do with the screening program, but the only way I So can- we can't blame you. Got it. No, no, no. I have yeah. nothing to do with that. But, but I Don't can- blame Lisa. She did not do that. <laughs> But, but the crazy thing, I mean, this, I can only speak to my experience. And yeah. my experience was that when um, when I started with, when the TSA was stood up, you know, a brand new building, new furniture, new everything, and they were hoping to send the best of the best that's already, you know, um, civil servants, you know, federal staff over to help manage and, and, and deal with that. But if you're the best of the best in your particular 
area, you're not going to necessarily leave that to start something brand new. So you tend to send maybe, you know, a problem staff member, you know, give them a great opportunity to, you know, you know, they're frustrated. So give them a great opportunity to go over there. And so that was the first wave. And not all of them had the experience or the the um, wherewithal to, to do that. So they did a second wave, which they decided, well, we're going to get all of the um, the um, top um, security folks, you know, the cops, you know, let's get them in there because, you know, we're a policing type of security. So they brought in a whole bunch of those who went in there to try to kick ass, but you can't kick ass with, a, with um, federal employees that are, you know, long term. So that didn't go anywhere. So the next wave, I think, was the CEOs because they said, well, let's run like a business. So some CEOs came over and, and finally the CEOs didn't want the cops kicking, you know, kicking and screaming and they couldn't do anything with the other ones and so I got caught up in the next wave which was which are the the recent graduates from you know the 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 top schools let's get these MBAs let's get these aviation people and I came from Emory Riddle and um with my second master's so I got caught up in that wave and you're looking for leadership and you have no idea (laughs) what's what's going on and um so it was just a timing thing I um it was just a timing at that time, you know. Yeah. It was very, very um, unique uh, situation. Um, it just sounds like TSA, from the get-go, they weren't real sure what direction they wanted to go, based on what you're saying. And they kept trying to find a different way to to make it uh, No, I think I didn't knew which way they wanted to go, but I think with any organization, when you get into your yeah. staffing and you try to get people to buy into the same vision and getting the right skill set and the right temperament and all of that, that's that's the science, and that's with any organization. So I, I don't blame them 100%. At least they tried oh, it, a variety it, of different things. So um, yeah, I, it's, it's... I continue to wish them luck. <laughs> uh, we all do, I think. <laughs> so yeah, when you were you were mentioned, uh, hey, then they were you know they got cops kicking ass, and I was like, yeah, kick, I, I see him kick ass on you know ninety year old grandmas in in the security line. <laughs> no, this I'm is at like, the HQ. This is at the management side. So I I know exactly the what you mean. I'm not talking are... about that. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I just tell everyone to um, but, but, you know, pack a sense flows, of humor. Yeah, it all seems to flow down. I, I it's a thankless job, and they and I, you know obviously. You know, me and my wife talked about this. It's like, you know, they're doing something that's to protect us. Um, But, you know, when people are traveling, you know, the airport is already one of those places where people are stressed. And then Mm -hmm. you add the lines and, you know, and when good people that are, you know, just law-abiding people trying to travel end up, you know, getting pat down or, you know, TSA, you know, agent is having a bad day and they decide to take it out on someone who's, you know, a good person – yeah, then those kind of things after a while compound, and I think people are just you know it's it's frustrating. I wish there was a better way to do it. It was weird because after nine eleven, I remember I, I actually had gone to Australia with uh, my friends, and we were uh, flying within Australia, and there was almost no security, almost nothing. There was an old style you know metal detector that they you know the kind he had back in the seventies, but there was nothing. Uh, it was you just got on. Um, the I plane, remember, and, yeah. yeah, and it was after nine eleven. I, now I don't know that they're like that anymore. I think everybody's kind of, but you know, I remember thinking, looking at my buddies, like, you, you remember flying like this? I, that, that those days are gone. They're just long gone. We've now gone to a completely, you know, the paradigm is there, and I don't think there's any going back. You know, when it comes to that TSA infrastructure, and and you know, to your point about creating something new like mm-hmm. that, it's like, 
you know, once that's created, once there's that bureaucracy in place, the, you know, something that's been added, there is not typically a dismantling. There is only a change of direction or, or orders. Yeah, or a breath, a breath of fresh air, or a breath yeah. of stink, one or the other. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, you understand from secu- from your security experience, you know, with the military, the most frustrating thing is you, in order to thwart the um, bad guys, you have to keep changing things up, and yeah. so for for the public, um, it's very very difficult when they start changing things up. So you're prepared, you've got all everything in a baggie and you you're not gonna take your shoes off and you wore the right clothes and then they go through and then they've switched something up on you. I mean I just had my bags completely dumped, every item swabbed because there was this new I don't know if it was new or not, it was new to me. Um I packed um um non-dairy creamer mm-hmm. in my bag. And because it, it it was powder even though it was never open and it was still sealed at the top. Um, they had something about powder, so flour or mixes, cake mixes, and and these these powders. And um, I waited for probably 15 minutes while they swabbed every single item. They kept saying, "I'll throw it away. I'll throw it away." And I'm like, "Are you serious? Non-dairy cream or coffee made in yeah. the city cost me about eight bucks. I could I bought it here for two fifty. I can wait for a little bit longer for that." But but again, I, I can't say I wasn't annoyed. I was very very annoyed um, because I thought I followed all the orders to get in and get out. And yeah, I think that's most people's you know experience when it comes to TSA. That's why I was asking you know what it was like at the uh, you know at the at the management level because I was like you know typically the way we you know the end of the line when we get those people there's usually some sort of a a company culture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, corporate culture, and in this case, it's not a corporation; it's government agency. Which, you know, we all know government is right. so efficient, right? <laughs> so it, it's one of those things where I'm always like, yeah, I wonder if it is just like that throughout the TSA in general. And well, if you're talking about screeners alone, that yeah. company culture comes from the airport itself. So yeah, that's a great air, point. Yeah. Each airport is a little bit yeah. different. Um, that would make sense, right? Because there's probably you know there's someone there who's the TSA manager for that airport, mm-hmm. depending on how busy it is, the uh, the place you're at. Yeah, obviously that would have a, a great a great deal of right. And that's so important. So when you're in a management role, it's very very important that you're setting a culture of inclusion and and able to ask questions and a little bit of fun and lightness and especially something that's really um, intense. Yeah, um, yeah. Because the rest of the staff can follow that, yeah, but then you tough. have to balance that so they don't get you know too lackadaisical. But it's a tough balance. Yeah, it, it is. And you know, when you were mentioning getting you know them swabbing everything down, you, it 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 does feel like we've lost something there. I whenever I talk to people about that, or or whenever we're traveling, I just kind of there's you know knowing how it was in the past as to how it is now, and you kind of compare that and. You know, if you're young, you've never had, you've never not had that. It's just how it is. But if you've seen it, you know, there's a little bit of a sort of, you know, that whole, oh, we can't have nice things because of a few people, right? And so it it is odd. You know, no one likes it. No one likes it. No one wants to go through that line. Of course, once you get, if you get singled out and they start, you know, going through your stuff, you feel violated and, and, you know, at, at least, at the least annoyed, right? And, and. But I don't know that there's any way out of that, you know, at this point when it comes to a security. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. So if you were traveling and you were about to board a commercial um, aircraft in, yeah. a, in another country and no one got screened. Yeah. 
would you feel differently? Yeah, I certainly, I certainly would. I'd be on mm-hmm. high alert. You know, so the sheep, the you know, the the sheepdog in me is 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 you know, I'd kind of be like, okay, let's 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 watch out for. for on the other hand, would I, you know, would I still get on the plane is a question. I, yeah, you know, exactly. knowing me, I, of course I would. It's uh, changed how travelers yeah. think about traveling and how they think about their passengers. Yeah. It's changed everything. Yep. No, that's right. So there's a, and, and there's a, you know, where you draw that line is almost, and, and as a matter of fact, this has been one of the things I've, a, a subject's been coming up lately a lot, which is how do you draw the line? You know, how much tragedy do you, are, are we able to accept? in order to still have, you know, privacy or, or what constitutes individual rights. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that I, I, I don't have the answers. I tend to draw the box bigger around the individual uh, than others. And, and But other people, you know, if you have something that's a, you know, that causes a, an incredible visceral response in a lot of people, they're like, no, prevent that. Prevent it at all costs to include, you know, whatever rights or, you know. And so... Well, there's one thing you have to keep in mind, too, is that any nation's GDP, the gross national product, any nation's economic status mm-hmm. is directly tied to its aviation or to it, its travel modalities. Can they get goods and services in, imports, exports? Can you get people in and out? If, if you can't travel people and you can't get your goods in and out, then as a country, you can't grow. And so that's why it's very, very important that um, these aviation safety features and security features are balanced, where it's not so prohibitive Mm -hmm. that air operators don't want to come in and actually conduct operations and that they can do so um, and at least break even, you know, because then they've got all these other fees, you know, you've got your gate fees and your landing fees, and then you've got your... um, your your air navigation fees and, and and all these other things and then now you've got security fees you know and this is on top of your payroll on top of your fuel costs on top of on top of and so there there has to be a balance there and so to your to your point where do you draw that line you draw that line at basically can an air operator um work within this type of a system can they adapt to this and is it considered in in their secure safety and security system yeah i mean and we and it's a great point because we tend to look at it uh you know purely from an american standpoint and you know americans are very famously you know you know don't don't tell me what i can't do <laughs> you know oh, we're, 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 we're very much like that and uh so and i you know i, I that's one of those things about America that I love, and I I, I think it's you know I think it works, uh, but there's less of it, uh, and and there's a reason for that. But you're right, the, the culture of a country. As a matter of fact, I was just thinking when you were saying that, you know, I went I flew back the last time I flew back from the Euphrates River Valley. I, I mm-hmm. went through uh, uh, Dubai and then mm-hmm. through Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, the Germans, man, they are. I went through no less than four checkpoints right. going from one gate to another. I mean, I had. I was already past security, and there's security within the security within this. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, "You, this is crazy, right. people!" And they, but they are very, you know. And I just was like, "Wow, this is even, you know, this is even yeah. more prohibitive." And when you go to lesser developed countries, you'll see that the airlines themselves will have a tertiary screening. So you've been through the airport, mm-hmm. you've been yeah. through your baggage, all through multiple even. Yep. But before you get on the airplane. You're wanded. You're wanded again. Yeah. And oftentimes there's zero check baggage. 
you can take your purse with your meds and your you know earphones um, but no checked baggage everything has to go so again you know when you're traveling internationally these are just some things you just have to be prepared that it's not exactly the same everywhere and you just have to have a sense of humor and then just know that this is just a part of global traveling yeah uh, uh Lufthansa had um, their own security check mm-hmm. at the gate, mm-hmm. uh, staffed by Lufthansa people. Yep. So even though you had gone through uh, security there, um, and this was outside of Germany, obviously. This one, so that's. Um, so yeah, how did you even get in? You said you always wanted to fly. You're from Kentucky. <laughs> where? Yeah, where did you grow up in Kentucky again? Did you say was it Campbellville? Yeah, yeah. good memory. Yeah. Well, I, I know Kentucky a little bit. My wife is from there. Uh, she um, uh, she grew up in Lexington. Well, actually, she grew up a lot of places, but Lexington was hometown, and she went to the University of Kentucky. So when you Ooh. said that, I was like, yeah, Campbellsville, I know where that is. Cool. Oh, my goodness. You're either lost or hunting or fishing. So, <laughs> man, all of those sound really good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a small town. You know, when I grew up there, there wasn't a whole lot of there there. Now it, it's it's grown. A, it's got a university, and yeah. my dad was a um, – what's a a professor at Kimmelsville College at the time. My mom worked at, as a nurse um, and some other roles up there. Yeah, but, I mean, it was one of these places where, um, you know, it's kind of idyllic, you know. Most people don't understand this, especially now that I live in the city, but, you know, I remember my mom telling us kids, get out of the house. I don't want to see your face. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to see you until the lights come on. My, they had no clue where we were. <laughs> we, you know, half the time we're on the what roof of our house. What a great time! I, yeah. yeah, but that was the type of place we we grew up in, and um, I I don't know that I had big dreams. You know, I kind of thought I would end up, you know, raising babies and green beans in a double wide. You know, because that was not necessarily a bad life, but. Um, you know, there's a joke that, you know... Well, your dad was a professor, so there was probably a little bit more cosmopolitan atmosphere, no? N- not not really, but one thing that my dad did is, you know, he he's he likes free stuff. And at the library, the, the, he, they um, gave away old, old National Geographic yeah. magazines. And that's how my brothers and I knew that there was a world out there because there wasn't much TV, you know, we didn't get very many channels at the time. And, and yeah, we got <laughs> yeah, so um, he brought back National Geographic, and um, that changed our lives. So my older brother, he, t- you know how they had the maps inside? Yeah. He took the maps, and he wallpapered his entire room with National Geographic maps. And um, and he he was in the Peace Corps. Uh, he left United States in 2004 to be an expat, and he's lived all over the world. He's not lived back in the U.S. He's had the whole expat life with three kids. His kids speak multiple languages. Um, he's had a very interesting life, and I have to attribute that a lot to my dad, you know, bringing back the, the magazines. And then my younger brother, he's he's traveled a lot as well. Um, me, I just, you know, thumb through, look at the pictures, and I was just like, oh, I want to see that myself. I'm gonna... And I think that's kind of how, how do you see as much as possible, as fast as possible? You fly, you do aviation, right? And so... When I said I wanted to fly, you know, I was told that Southern girls don't fly. And so I took it because it's very important how you interpret what people say. Southern girls don't fly. Right. What I if- interpreted that as there were no known Southern girls that have ever flown before. So that's how I took it. And I wanted to be the pioneer. And um, 
it took me a while to get there. I went to Eastern Kentucky University and uh, as my undergrad, and I went through there. Who told you that? I don't Someone. Even, yeah, I don't Some even. Some random person, and it made it, and it made an impact. I know who it is. And uh, my mom knows her name, too, but okay. we're not going to so say it. you don't have to say the name. <laughs> yeah, someone in the community that probably was like, Southern girls yeah, don't fly. Yeah, it was a teacher who basically a, said, you know, that my yeah. life would be basically nothing but raising babies in green beans yeah. and a double wide. And, and, yeah. and that's where I got that phrase from. Whatever you say, like, I was told this. I'm like, yeah, who told you that? And how did that have – it's amazing that – you know, the effect that something, you know, someone in the community can have. But. Right. And, and it's so important that when somebody says that to yeah. you, especially when you're a kid. Did you tell your dad? He probably would have been like, that's a bunch of malarkey. <laughs> no, I told my mom. My mom was just like, well, she doesn't know you. Yeah. And that, that job, that's mom. what you have to take away from this. Yeah. Whenever someone says something negative or you can't do something or whatever, you have to say, you don't have to say it out loud because you don't want to be too confrontational or too combative, but you can say to yourself, she just doesn't know me. So let me try it. And you're not ever going to make them proud of you if they're already, you know, treating you in a disrespectful manner. But but still, you can make yourself proud and say, well, she just doesn't know me and I'm going to try this and this is what happened. And, and I'm, I'm very proud of the different things that I've been able to do. Um, and I'm not saying that I did a lot of things because I was trying to prove somebody else wrong, but it it is kind of helpful when someone says you can't do that because it's like oh I can't huh I wonder I'd like to figure that out for myself if I can or can't see it's coming it's coming back to being American again <laughs> we have, no yeah. no it's, it has nothing to do with it. it there's a personality there right that says hey you just challenged me and so that use that as motivation. Well, what's so wonderful? So I about- do that all the time, Lisa. I, I'm the same way. You know, if someone right. says, "Hey, you know, this isn't you can't do this," or or even you know, "Hey, that's going to be really difficult." In that way, that makes you you know, where they're trying to tell you, "Hey, you might want to rethink that." You're just like, for me, it's like, "Oh yeah, watch this." Yeah. Well, for me, I also had to fund everything. Yeah. I paid a hundred percent of all my education, my flight training, everything. I had to pay for myself, and so that's where a lot of people get discouraged and say, "Well, I can't afford this." You know, well, there's ways to find money, and I became I, I I became the self-anointed queen of scholarships, and I learned how to find scholarships. I applied for them. Um, I was amazed at the number of people who don't apply for them because they're like, you know, I would never be selected for a scholarship, or it's too much work. I have to write an essay or whatever. You know, it's not too much work if you're getting checks coming in that's going against what you don't have to write. Um, so you find a way, and then I, I borrowed, uh, not borrowed, but bartered a lot. So with my flight training, I did that in North Las Vegas. The guy who owned the flight school, he um, had some young kids, and um, and he there were some certain skill sets he didn't have that I had, and so I would barter and trade. So I'll I'll do all your scheduling with your um, instructors and such, and I will man your your desk, you know, reception desk. And if you want to bring your kids in, you know, I'll keep an eye on them in exchange for flight time. And so these were things that he needed, and I I got more experience in different areas, and so I bartered. A lot. I love barter. I, yeah. I love it. Anyone who, you know, I, I say that all the time. I'm like, that's that could be a great answer to a lot of problems. <laughs> Just barter, good old-fashioned barter. Mm-hmm. But it's harder and harder to do when, you know, we uh, when we deal with each other less and there's more of an online presence. Yeah, but I love hearing those stories. And I... I and it, you know, especially when you were like, you know, when your mom was like, "Get out of the house, man!" Because my mom and dad did that all the time. Uh-huh. They're like, "What are you doing?" You know, I remember my dad. Like at some point, he would be. He told us one day. He was like, "When I was your age, we were outside. We'd make a bat out of something in the lumber yard, and we'd play baseball." And I'm like, 
is this, what is this, leave it to Beaver Dad? And he's yeah. like, get out. Where, where's the lumberyard near <laughs> you know, where we live I know, now? And I'm just yeah. laughing, but you know, it was just the same thing. They didn't even know where we were. We came, you know, when the street lights came on, mm-hmm. you, you were like, oh, got to go check in, you know. And then even after that, it, we'd play flashlight tag and, and it didn't even matter. I, uh, I, I, I do think there's less and less and less of that. Kind of goes back to where you draw the line again in a new world that where where there's different realities and externalities. Mm-hmm. But how do you adapt? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I one of the one of the themes that keeps coming up in a lot of my conversations, Lisa, and I'm 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 still trying to learn as much as anyone. That's why whenever I have these conversations, I'm like, yeah, what are your thoughts? Where are we get? You know, I had a futurist on, and he, he was fascinating. I was like, hey, I, I was like, are we getting better? He goes, well, yes, and and no. And it just depends. And he's like, it's not better or worse. You know, basically, his, his take was just different, just different reality. Right. And so I, all those memories, you know, those kind of things growing up in a different time, like you were saying, I, I cherish those. And I kind yeah. of, there's, there's a little bit of nostalgia for it, even though we could rightfully point out that there was a lot of things back then that were not as good as they are now. So That's true. But yeah. I think we were more connected back then. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. We didn't have the, like, I can remember certain things I never had before, like, we never had microwaves. That's right. Yeah. We didn't have cell phones. Well, we certainly didn't. Have that. <laughs> yeah, we. Um, I remember at some point in my late twenties, early thirties, the thing to have was a beeper. Yep, I remember that. And, pagers, people that had right. pagers. You're like, <laughs> and you'd run to the payphone to to check your messages or whatever. I mean, it was that 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 was then, and and now it's it's like everything is so accessible, and uh, I think the entitlement is different. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and the instant 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 gratification or the yeah. instant information yep. is so there and, and I think you spend so much time researching and looking at information you don't you lose that whole um, that whole discovery piece where you're not looking at how many different people wrote the same article or this or wrote an article about the same topic you you're, you're discovering for yourself and so some of that discovery I think is yeah, I agree. Lost. I agree, 100%. So how did you end up in Vegas, by the way? Oh, my goodness. That's a whole different story. <laughs> Is this so, one of those what happens in Vegas stories? No, I lived, I lived in L.A. You got a pilot's license. I woke up. I had a pilot's license. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so you'll think I'm a real Fruit Loop now. So I I lived in Los Angeles for a while. Right we, out can of, be, we can be two different colors of Fruit Loop, for okay. sure, Lisa, because I feel, I feel like I'm one. So <laughs> Okay, so, so I lived in L.A. I, I moved there right after I graduated Eastern Kentucky University. Um, I had a boyfriend I adored. We broke up. Up and um, I just kind of wanted to float away from it all. And I saw an ad looking for for cruise ships in Hawaii. I applied and I got the job. So I moved to Hawaii, working on a cruise ship. And I decided, well, what I'm going to do with my life? And I decided I'm going to go to law school. Right. So I applied to law school. And um, so, what were you doing on the cruise ship? I got to. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> um, I started doing one thing on the cruise ship, which is um, kind of like working the line, like quality the assurance. No, no, don't even go there. <laughs> we called it on the, the ship, you know, the passengers were either n- newlywed or nearly dead. You know, it was <laughs> and it was an old, old, it was um, American Hawaii Cruise Line. So it was an older, older ships. Um, SS Constitution and um, SS Independence. The Constitution was in a fair to remember the old movie in the 50s. Wow. So it was a really old, old ship. So it had a lot of nostalgia and stuff. So um, I started doing one thing, but then I ended up finding out how much waiters made, and I became a waiter. And I saved my money to go to law school. I was accepted at law school. I went to look at the first year books at law school, and I just sat there. And I remember I was in Hawaii, and I was 
um, um, I, I went to the bookstore. It was all closed up, but it was propped open because they were doing inventory. And the, the guy says, yo, sister, sister, sit down, sit down. You read, you read, you look. So I was just looking at it, and I, and I just burst out in tears. And he comes over, and she goes, oh, what's wrong? Sister, what's wrong? And I'm like, I'm not interested. I don't like this. And go, oh, let's go not for you. Let's go not for you. Don't go there. And that was like the wisest advice. And so what I did is all old cruise ship people go to Las Vegas. Because Las Vegas, for servers and for cooks, is the same as cruise ships because you're still doing it for the masses. So in case you didn't know that, if you go to Vegas, ask if count the number of people that have worked on cruise ships yeah, that have worked there. This could probably be another podcast in uh, and of itself, right? So the hospitality. I just got finished reading Kincha Confidential. Uh, and it just gave me this insight into the uh, Anthony Bourdain's book. Uh, oh. is a, you know, the one that really put him on the map. But right. when you're saying that, I'm like, yes, there's this whole, there's a whole underbelly, underbelly of uh, hospitality yeah. community that... Exactly. So when I moved to Las Vegas, you know, because that's where all my friends were now from the cruise ship, um, I looked in the one ads for a job and I saw an ad in the paper for Emory Riddle Aeronautical University looking for an, a, a professor, right? I'm not a professor. But I figured if they're looking for a professor, then there must be a school there. So I called the number, and I set up an interview, and it was at Nellis Air Force Base. I was a civilian, and so I got civilian access, and I went in and um, turned out, uh, again, as God would only have it, um, if I put in my application right then and right there, they could start, I could start school like in the next, you know, three weeks. And that's what I did. And then once I was there, which, you know, Nellis Air Force Base is in North Las Vegas, where North Las Vegas Airport is. So I had to pass all the signs for flight training. And I'm like, it's a sign. That's it. That is too funny. That is too funny. I still don't know what you were doing on the cruise ship, but that's okay. Oh, waiting tables. Oh, okay. I was I, I, when you went to Las Vegas. I was like, oh yeah, she was probably at. Uh, she was probably. No, she I was, was probably a dealer. No, no, I thought you were going to say something else. No, I thought no. you were a dealer, like you no, know, no, no. Uh, running tables uh, for the. No, I'm sorry. I thought I said but... I was a waiter. No, I was a waiter, a server. Um, at one time, we did. Um, I trained to be a cabin attendant, yeah. which is like cleans up the cabins. Yeah. But to tell you the truth, when I push push down the um, covers you know to change the linens I don't want to see what's under the covers yeah, no, so I was just like I can't handle the suspense <laughs> so God, bl- God bless the people that do it man because I, I mean I just couldn't do it I think I'd probably just be homeless and right, and that's, that's one of these jobs that you would never yeah. know that 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 yeah. That, that tweaks your mind unless you do it. And yeah. so I went back to waiting. Yeah, it's not all Isaac the bartender. I, uh, it's so funny when you say cruise ship. But we, uh, I just all of a sudden started thinking of the love boat, which again, uh, probably ages both of us. Not not that my gray hair it's a fun. That, it's a fun right? um, <laughs> It's a fun show, but no, not not my experience. Um, so where were you in Hawaii, by the way? I, I'm, I'm I lived in... on the ship, so went around. Oh, okay, gotcha. And when yeah. I wasn't on the ship, I lived in a place called Holua, um over in Kona for a little bit, yeah, yeah. and then um, on Big Island. Kona's on Big Island. I love no Kona. Kona, uh, yeah. Kailua on Kona's the on the Big Island on the west side. Yeah, yeah so I lived Kona. in Hawaii for three and a half years. That's okay. why I'm asking. Um, yeah, um, the, the um, ship went in and out of Aloha Towers, which is in Oahu. Yeah, and then um, but you lived on the ship right there in port. Then yeah, that's pretty cool. We all lived on the ships, yeah. and when you're not on the ships, you live in a hotel or at friends' houses. And so I spent most of my yeah. time in, in Kona. Yeah, uh, that's it's really cool. I loved my time in Hawaii. I, I couldn't. I was ready to go back uh, when I was done, but it's it's weird. Either you really love the islands and you want to stay there, or mm-hmm. you're kind of like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going stir crazy. I was the the latter of those. I I loved it, but then um, my grandfather got sick, and by the time the message got to me, to the you know to the to the ship, he had already passed away, and 
when you realize you're five hours just to lost you know to the mainland, yeah, and then another five or six hours to home, the the distance. I mean, it's not like you can just like go home and, and hang out with your mom for a weekend or, or anything like that. So, um, I, but I love my time in Hawaii. I'm glad I had it. You know. Did yeah, it, had fun in it. I'd love to go back someday, but um, I was I was ready to. It's it's a whole different, as you know, it's a whole different culture. Yeah, it's a very whole much. different um, um, idea. I love the laid back life. Yep. When I compare that life to what I have now in New York City, I, my head just spins on my neck because it's like, um, wow. Yeah, you, I've really come. I've really come full circle. It's hard to think of two more disparate uh, cultures than uh, Manhattan and uh, Kailua Kona on the Big Island, which is, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, even slower than Oahu even, which is, yeah. So, yeah, so you you ended up at flight school there in Nellis Air Force Base, and how'd that go? (laughs) That was a lot of fun. Um, I had a crazy, crazy, uh, I had two different flight instructors, but I had a crazy, crazy one. And he loved to die, just mess with me. And so I remember once um, he um, lit a piece of paper on fire with a lighter and threw it in the back seat. And he's like, fire, emergency fire, what are you going to do? And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> and I'm looking back there and there's a piece of paper burning. And he goes, what are you going to do? And so he always drank, uh, remember the big gulps? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they still have them, you know, at 7-Eleven. So he was drinking a big gulp. So uh, he had it right between his legs. I just grabbed the big gulp between his legs and threw it backwards. <laughs> And he, I just remember him saying, oh, shit. You know, because he goes, you got to clean that out now. And I said, I took care of the fire, right? And he goes, yeah, you did. So um, that, that went well. But because I was doing my master's, too, at Nellis Air Force Base, most of the guys guys um, in my class um, were all fighter jocks. Yeah. Right? Some were T-bird drivers and some were the you know fighter jocks. But they were TDY all the time, which means that they were on business trips, right? Yeah. They were gone. Yeah. and. Temporary duty uh, elsewhere, basically. Yeah, exactly. So um, they were um, needed to keep up with their studies. And so I made an agreement with with a few that I'll keep you up in your studies if you help me with my ground school and help me with my flight, you know, training. And they agreed. So, you know, like instead of doing one PowerPoint, I would do like six, right? And just set it up for them. I didn't do the work in my riddle. I didn't do the work. I just laid it out so when they came and, and I just, you know, so they knew exactly what to put in there just to, you know, so that they could um, get through the program, right? So what they taught me was ground school. So they taught me how to navigate exactly the way they taught it, you know, with your thumb and your <laughs> dead reckoning and stuff like that. So I remember when I did um, my check ride with my FAA check airman, he asked me a question and I did it exactly like I was trained. I took the, um, the sectional, threw it on the window, did my thumb, measured it, told him the answer. He looks at me and he goes, who are you? What, what, what is that? And I said, is it wrong? Uh, that's exactly how, is it wrong? And he goes, no, you're, you're per, it's, it's right. But I don't know how you got there. And I'm like, so, and he goes, I, yeah, okay. He had no military experience or anything. And he was just like, will you teach me how to do that? And I'm like, no, no. I just kind of want to get my my license. And well, you didn't teach him. You should have. I mean, I can show you what I was yeah. told, and 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 um, 
But I, I didn't want to teach him right there in the plane. No, anytime an FAA guy to ask you, hey, can you teach me? Go, yeah, absolutely, I'll teach you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just didn't want to do it right then at that moment at the, in the plane. Oh, yeah. I'm like, give me my next duty so that I can, you know, so you can check, so I can start soloing. Yeah. What were you, what were you flying? What planes? Do you um, yeah. Yeah. I did uh, 172s, of course. Okay. Yeah. So and then I did yeah. a 150 Aerobat. Okay. Um, and then there's a variety of different ones, mainly 172s, though. Yeah. So where'd you where'd you go from there? Then you got obviously you got your your check ride done. Your pilot. Yep. yep. And um, so I applied for. Um, I needed to make money. I was a, a, a waitress too at nights in Las Vegas, yeah. at a beautiful restaurant, Lowry's, Lowry's the Prime Rib, gorgeous restaurant, and loved it. And um, but I got an intern, a paid internship, and they actually paid me to move from um, Vegas to um, Eagle, Colorado. It's a nice place. Again, hitting you talk about hitting a, a wall. The difference between, you know, Kona, Hawaii to Las Vegas, and now Las Vegas back to, to Eagle in the summer. Yeah, there's nobody there, and so I was uh, like um, training as an assistant airport manager, that type of thing. That's beautiful out there. It is gorgeous. It is. It is gorgeous. And I. I so you weren't flying in Eagle. That's tough flying, yeah, by the way. I did. I, I did. Yeah. I flew out there. I learned to fly in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Okay. Yep. Which is zero room for error. Yeah, so you no. got a mountain there, a mountain there, a mountain there, and if you undershoot, you're going to end up in a creek. If you if you go too far to the left, you're going to end up in kids' soccer field. Too far to the right, you're going to end up, you know, again off off of a cliff. You there's zero room for error. And I still remember my flight instructor. You know, when I was landing, and he was like, "Look at this profile," and he says, "Burn it in your brain, burn it in your brain." So I kind of learned to develop that kind of. Um, that concept of burning the, the the correct profile of what you're supposed to see and how how the yeah. horizon fits and everything to land and I learned like um, instrument rate got my instrument rating out there so the step down procedure so that's how you land into Aspen because you're real high up yep. and, and the runways are low and you can't bo- dive bomb so yeah, you, you have can't to do go these. in you go into runway 15 there um, the other and you know most of them t- i think it's 15 then they take off of uh what is it 33 yeah i don't remember the um, orientation i just remember the step down and my ears would be like yeah, cuz you come over that big ridge mm-hmm. and you have to it's, it's really a yeah yeah i think it's called the maroon bells or the is the mountain mm, yeah the, if, I, if i'm ring the maroon bells is a great hike uh, backpacking mm-hmm. very famous backpacking yeah. but i remember my 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 ears were you know, throbbing literally, you know, because you had this really dramatic yeah. jet, you know, and in the 172, you don't have that pressurization. And then, um, and then for some other type of work, if I, if I, once I got my commercial license, I would fly like um, parts and checks or whatever from there to um, um, Denver. So you're crossing the Rockies in a little plane. Oh my gosh. I, I kept thinking I was going to have brain damage. Yeah, you get banged around. Oh yeah, your your head would be smacking the side of the um, the cabin, you know, um, with just the turbulence. Yeah. And, and after a while, I'm thinking this can't be normal, but it, it that that it is normal. And oh, people fly 172s and small lights all over Colorado <laughs> through that stuff. Yeah. You just, no, uh, the Alaskans probably probably laugh at that even. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's not a joke. It's no joke. You're you're right, and it's and it's not normal for a lot of pilots because, you know, for those of you listening that that aren't you know that don't know aviation, 
Um, obviously, there's turbulence around mountainous areas. You may know that. But the, the other part of that is that it's very high. The, the um, elevation creates for a thinner density atmosphere, a thinner air, which means that you have less lift. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, of your, uh, all of your performance calculations are much more uh, narrow, razor thin on the right. uh, margin Not, of error. No room for error. They're very, very tough flying, and, and especially when you go to something like Eagle or Aspen where it's a, sh- you know, there's only a certain way in and out because of the terrain around it. And, you know, if you lose an engine on takeoff, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you've got uh, real emergency procedures that you have to know to yeah. do right away. How do you learn and, yeah. land in trees? Yeah. You know, that, I remember I remember that. But I think it did make me a much better pilot because oh, um, yes. you, you had, like you said, you have zero room for error. Yep. And then you're always looking for the worst case scenario. So if you have to put down, I remember constantly scanning like, okay, there's two trees about the same height that I could shear my wings off and get wedged in there and, 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 and die trying to jump out of it but you know you just you know yeah Yeah. and then you correct you know along the way but it was um it it was a good experience yeah no absolutely must have made you a better better pilot yeah so you were that was you were doing the airport manager thing getting your instrument rating and then then what did you end up you know i don't think we talked about this uh even in the email did you end up flying uh were you doing like part 91 were you doing corporate flying Mm -hmm. yeah yeah part 91 and then later 135 okay yeah so you did both those yeah yeah and uh um so it it started out as um flight attending because they wanted someone who would both do flight it because because female pilots you know weren't all that there weren't any (laughs) there were very very few um and back then you didn't have to get necessarily your um a um type rating um, if you're flying first officer in it. And um, I found this guy who wanted... Um, well, part 91, yeah, you still yeah, don't. They, they wanted a uh, someone who would do who's willing to do flight attending and first officer. And I thought, oh, that would be kind of fun because I get to use left brain, right brain, you know, creative. I like to cook. I like to do, you know, let's, let's see what happens. Um, I didn't realize you never sleep. Never. And when you, you do that kind of a role. So that was my first entree. And then later I did a variety of other things but but anyway it was a great experience and um i just decided you know if i took one more contract this would be my life forever because when you when you, the contracts run i think like three months on and and two weeks off yeah and the two weeks off if i go back to kentucky and talk to friends you know and you tell you know they're like so what have you been up to oh i've been in rome i've been in paris you know i've done you know they're like oh well, i just i burnt babies you know there's no commonality and so I just learned a long time ago I can't really talk about any of my experiences because um, there's really no body unless you are in corporate aviation that understands this kind of a lifestyle that when you're a contract pilot somebody else owns you right they they own you they can tell you they can sequester you and, and several times I was sequestered where I couldn't leave a, a hotel like in, you know, in, in Baku, Azerbaijan I had to stay there and you're like looking at like, where's the travel and the exploration? You know, I get to see the airport. And yeah, I get people to... forget about that. I That's a great point. Right? It's, a, it's a lonely life, yeah, too. People are always like, oh, you're a pilot. You know, you, you get to travel. Well, obviously, for me, it's it's not been that because I was a Marine Corps pilot. So that's, yeah, well, I traveled, but yeah. it, it's not. But even Part 121 guys, you know, if you're, if you're flying for one of the airlines and you're mm-hmm. going overseas, uh, you know, for the most part, they're getting their money's worth. You're not, you don't have, you know, 
even one day to go out and just to, you know, do the tourist. Usually you get the hotel, right? You drag your bags to the hotel, you check in, you, you crash, you get up, you go back to the right. plane, you're going for your next leg. It's that, not a it's not a glamorous travel lifestyle. Mm-mm. That's right. Right, and I could never fly 121 because I don't have that circadian rhythm. Some people are trained, you know, like, okay, I have to get my duty rest, so I'm going to go in and lay it down, and, and I'm going to go sleep and wake up. My body doesn't work like that. You yeah. know, I can't, it, it falls to sleep whenever it decides to, and I don't require a lot of sleep. Um but it's very very difficult. That's you know. comforting in your pilot. Y- yeah. So you can't. Yeah. So you can't really. No. Right. So I would never be one. Be like single pilot. Be like, hey, listen, I just fall asleep whenever my body wants. You guys enjoy no, back there. <laughs> You're reading a little more into it than that. But I'm just saying, you know, like telling your body on demand. Okay, sleep because we have to I'm be up. with you. Yeah. So yeah. No. I, I get now you have to sleep. So when, why were you in Baku? Who were you flying with? I can't say. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I mean, I've, I've got all kinds of of that in my background, but I didn't yeah. know you were. So that was part 91 company, though? That, mm-hmm. yeah, it was. That was. Yeah. I was going to say it wouldn't have been 135. It would have had to have been a corporate structure. Right. Okay, well, that's cool. What were you, what, what plane were you flying at that point? Challenger. Yeah. CL-602. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, do you miss it? You miss flying, or...? I, I do right now. I mean, um, I would love to poke holes in the sky. I would love to just challenge myself in a different way like that because it's very mental and very physical. I miss that, but living in New York City, it's a little difficult, especially like if you're going to go to, um, um, you have to either join a flying club or it just gets expensive and then they want you to guarantee and I travel. Yeah, I wasn't so. even talking about like on your own time. I was talking about like as a oh, job. Professionally? But, yeah. Well, one of my retirement ideas is I would love to like fly humanitarian services yeah. so um go back and fly maybe mission aviation fellowship or fly something along those yeah, there's lines a, there's a couple of companies yeah. That do that, yeah or do um just fly boxes i don't think i'd ever fly passengers i mean boxes don't argue you don't have to worry so much about that so cargo or um, well yeah I, you know my so i have a couple of buddies that are at fedex um they, they love it they fly the backside of the clock of course right but fedex pays very very well right um yeah, I, the reason I ask is that, you know, so my my day job now, um, uh, or my part-time day job, is is I, I teach guys how to fly in simulators. So, mm. And guys come through all the time, and they there's, there's, there's people that come through that have been at a 121 airline for a long time. They are, they have to retire. They, they reach their age, and they're, they're like, hey, I just want to keep flying. And so they go to these other companies that uh, where that there isn't that age limit, and they right. keep going. And I'm just thinking, and this is why I was asking, you know, do you ever miss it? Because people are like, you know, people ask me that all the time. Bart, you miss flying? I'm like, I, I don't know. I miss I miss having a 20 millimeter cannon to shoot. That's kind of fun, right? Uh, but I don't miss flying. And I it's and more I wonder than if long, long time. I think. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know what it is. I just don't have it. I, I enjoyed flying. Um, I do enjoy flying. But I don't. It's not my passion. Like I, I can definitely take it or leave it, and right. I don't. You know, so these people that are like, I just want to keep flying, and they have this, you know, this desire to continue to do that bag drag, just to be able to push power up and take off and then land. It's like I, I don't, cool, I don't have it anymore. And the cool factor for me is gone. I, yeah. I mean, again, I, it's, I, it's, it's cool when you're flying a Cobra. Yeah. Well, just being able to defy gravity, there is a certain amount of coolness. I love the taking off and landing, but I mean, that is the cool part of that flying. Is the only, yeah. Everything else is 
is sitting and waiting for yeah. either something to go wrong or to adjust to make adjustments, you know, little tweaks here and there to stay on your, your yeah. path. And I, that was my thing is I just don't even know that the, 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 the cool factor is there anymore. I mean, again, it's it's us. It's as as a as a you know as a human species, I guess. You know, becoming used to flying. Just everybody can fly now. Yeah. Uh, it's and so it's not. And you see that, of course, because in your current role, you're you're basically assessing these carriers throughout the right. world. Mm-hmm. And, That's right. And so, even in developing countries, I I think, you know, flying is I wouldn't say it's de rigueur, but it's it's at least much more accessible even to developing um, you know, people in developing countries. Whereas when we were growing up, you know, it was a big deal to fly. I think it still is, and I know there's a huge shortage of pilots now in the U.S., but there's a, there's a huge pay disparity there. Um, it's very difficult for a pilot to go through all the training and pay for everything, and then start a job that pays twenty five thousand a year. Yeah, you know, and and it's not a job in which you can take a second job easily. You know, you can't wait tables at night or anything like that. So that's one of the things that has to be corrected. Um, is how do you get qualified, good pilots? Um, you know, especially the starting ones, because you've got you know you got UAE, you got China, you got India, you got all these other countries that'll pay you bank. Yep. If you're willing to move out there, they'll pay you bank and they'll start you out on a on a on a really good aircraft and and get you your type rating. All you got to do is sign you know a couple of years or ten um, agreement to to fly. And um, I think you know the U.S. is behind the power curve in that in certain areas. Yeah, I think you're right. There certainly is a shortage, and people ask about it all the time. That's why. So I, you know, I've said. So I think my wife is definitely um, wondering what it is I'm doing right now because I have turned down uh, flying job offers several times since I've left the last company I was with, the one I was telling you about. Right. And I continue to do it because I one don't really care to fly anymore, and two I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I. I this isn't this this isn't where my passion lies, and since I did all you know. An entire career in the in the Marine Corps. Are you uh, rotary only? So, oh no, gosh no! I, I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm more fixed wing now than okay. I am rotary. Yeah, I've got about equal amount of time, a little bit more fixed wing than rotor time. But yeah, you can. You, there's yeah, you, there's all kinds of jobs yeah. you can go to. So no, you, I know. Your wife I, just needs to understand: do you want to be around or not? Because it's more than likely to get a decent job, you're going to have to go overseas, and you could be an expat. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and uh, by the way, I would love that. You were talking about your brother. I, that sounds like a great existence. My my wife is a little bit more traditional in that she kind of wants to be in one place. And um, how old are it, the kids? You know, um, so my daughter is just about turn eight, and my son is three. No, it's a good yeah. time to start traveling. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's 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 great. I would love to do it. We love where we are, though, Lisa. Yeah. We're so we're down in farm country, Jersey. We live on almost five hundred acres. It's uh, mostly woods. Uh, it's really nice. And we, you know, I couldn't afford that. We're renting the old farmhouse on the property. But yeah. So I don't know. I'm I'm I really am only saying this as as me kind of talking to you. Like yeah. I don't know what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I do like this. I love talking to you people. You got options, and that's that's yeah. a great place. Well, to having be. that retirement is big, right? And then right. you know, with the Tricare. Uh, Right. I mean, so it's way more than most people if they Absolutely. were to leave. And so, yeah, I do. And again, my wife is uh, going to Rutgers. Uh, she's using my GI Bill. Good for her. Good for letting her use it. Yeah, good for yeah. her for taking advantage of it. Yeah, I know. She Well, she wanted to get back into the workforce anyway. And, uh, and you know, she had put everything on hold because I was, uh, you know, in the Marine Corps. And, and now she's getting to go back. And I think this time next year she'll... 
she'll be interviewing at least if not hired so yeah she's she's really awesome she's doing great good for her yeah um so uh, which reminds me you know we we kind of had mentioned this before um you know when you go to the un in terms of uh uh, of going in there and starting a, a a brand new well it wasn't a brand new program right it was. but it but it, it was, was on nothing existed that's right okay so I yeah it was it from scratch yeah so uh, you know you you basically had gone through all this training you're a pilot um, and then you talked a little bit about how you went to the TSA and then this this comes up you're in DC and they're like hey is this something you would want to do so mm-hmm. yeah how did that how did that go it's still going I've been there now um, eight and a half years. Um, yeah. We created. No, a, I knew you were still there. What I meant is, like, how did that evolve for you? Like, going there, ooh. you know, you're getting hired, and, and um, there's a lot of sacrifices involved, a lot of stomach lining. Um, I had to sacrifice, um, and, and there's always um, challenges. Of course, are you talking like more on the personal side or the all of it? All of it, yeah. Um, well, one of the reasons I took the job when I did. I applied when I did. Is yeah. Were you were you still at the TSA when? No, no, oh, no, no, no. You were, I, yeah. TSA was long, long ago. It was before I got married yeah. and everything else. Um, so I, I married a military guy, and a Navy um, officer. Um, you said that, and I loved right. that article you wrote. Yeah, and we were. Um, he basically deployed right after our honeymoon, um, and for the first eight years of our life, he was physically or mentally gone for six years. Yeah. At least you got a honeymoon. I still have not taken my wife on a honeymoon. Damn you. I know. I know what you're wrapping up for Christmas. Yeah, well, I just bought I promise. it. I promise. She'll listen to this, so I won't even, uh, I won't tell yeah, her. Yeah, you can always write Don't up search a little, behind my coats, babe, a, a in the closet. <laughs> search. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, coupons. No, you know, and I didn't I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that, that you know, obviously it was, um, you know, there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in that part yeah. of your life, so. Yeah, I was very um You guys dedicated. met in, in D.C., you said you met at church. Actually. At church, yeah. I met at church, and um, very short courtship, we, from our first date to our marriage it was six months went on a honeymoon came back and he theoretically deployed he went to the pentagon and he was the eo executive officer for an admiral during and he worked for um, medical service corps so he's like a hospital administrator type um finance accounting side so he went to work for an admiral and that was during hurricanes rita katrina sars bird flu it's like everything, so I call that a full deployment. You did that for two years, so I call that full deployment because there was nobody there, you know, and nobody, you, you, nobody home. You know, he was just spent every. And as soon as that 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 duty assignment was over, he left for for reals for realsies to um, to Bahrain. So um, so the article that that you're mentioning was you know someone wanted to, wanted to kind of understand what it was like to go through deployments because our whole marriage was nothing but deployments one after another and I was just describing what a deployment's like you know that the pre-deployments like you're planning for a wedding but you're planning for them to never come home because you got to sign all the agreements you know and um, uh, powers of attorneys and then when they're deployed it's like what the heck do you talk about because it becomes so administrative and you don't want to get him depressed and you don't because he's missing something but you don't want to there's such a balance that you have to do and so you're constantly swallowing and and figuring out what to talk to and especially if you don't have kids you have no topic of conversation other than administrative stuff and he can't tell you what he's doing 
And then the post-deployment is always the toughest because yeah. he's, he's you've, you know, you've been deployed, so you know you've built a camaraderie, you you know what your day is like, and then all of a sudden you're coming back and yep, it's tough. you got to deal with the spouse. And, and you have to reacquaint yourself. It's, so they're like, oh, you just pick up where you left off. I'm yeah. like, oh, no, 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 no. You start all over again, but you're not starting all over again from what you knew in the past. You're starting all over again from the person that shows up to your door, yeah. which means does he have PTSD? I mean, had, did something happen that he didn't tell you about that now he's, he's, he's acting not quite there? Who do you talk to? The military actually fails military families and, and military spouses because there really isn't a place at the time for me to say, what do I what what do I do? And so part of me going to the UN was an agreement that he and I made that he needed to get himself together. He needed to, I wanted him to go into some kind of a counseling or a therapy program. And so he told me that he would do that. I would take this job. It was only six months. Remember, the first one was a six-month contract. That was it. Six months. We would go back and forth. So I trained back and forth to D.C. Um, and then ultimately, he was, we agreed he would retire. And... Um, that never happened. He never got the. He never sought the, the help, and and then when he gave. While me, you're in, it's hard to do. Yeah, he gave me fake for our tenth wedding anniversary. He showed me fake retirement papers to show me that yes, he he put his papers in. So he filled them out, took a picture of them, and met, never filed them. So whenever I ask questions like, okay, so so. So, so now we need to start looking for a part, you know, a house. Let's go move to Connecticut, or do we stay in New York? Do we go, you know, how do we plan the rest of our lives? It was, I, I, you know, crickets, or don't go there, don't go there. And then later he, 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 had, he admitted that he lied. He did not give me. Those were not true papers. And after, How long had he been in? Um, uh, 24. Okay, so he was eligible. He just, yeah. just was having trouble stepping away. Well, again, it's it's that camaraderie and that sense of. Um, it's weird. Again, this is weird to me, Liz, because I, I was so ready to get out, and and it's it's just different. It's it's like with the flying. Some people just got to keep doing it. I'm like, why? Well, it's, ultimately, I had to I had to file for. I felt like I had to file for divorce because the man that I was now talking to and trying to deal with and trying to to what I thought was helping and trying, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know at all, yeah. and 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 everything changed, and all and then all these things he didn't tell me. Like I remember once he came, and he, he sat down and he w- winced, and um, I'm like, what what happened? And he admitted that he was doing extreme, he was playing extreme frisbee, and he was on an extreme frisbee team, tra- traveling around doing frisbee. And I'm like, well, when did you start doing that? Why didn't you tell me about that? I would have loved to have gone to a game, but then you know, once once you just once all these things that they're having this whole separate life while you're living here and they're living there and they're not even mentioning it to you, the the, the disconnect. So like even in deployments, you're disconnected, but you're still there's still something duty of you know duty of care there. But now it's like you don't even care to. I'm not even involved in your life. I'm not even considered. I'm not. I don't get it. So, so I, I, I filed for for divorce, not because I didn't love him, but because this man was not the guy I married. wasn't the same guy. So, um, what was interesting though was um, he did not even tell me or the lawyers when he retired. And and eventually the military, from what I understand, the mili- there was no place for him to go because you know you have to change your, your your orders regularly. There was no orders forthcoming, and so. He, you know, either riff or, or voluntarily retire, and 
he took that and he he went through this whole retirement thing. You know, they had a retirement party and all of this. I didn't know any of it until someone on Facebook sent me a message saying, I looked for you for you at the uh, 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 your your guy's retirement party because I didn't tell anyone that I filed for divorce. I didn't tell anybody. This was very, very private and um, very, very difficult for me. And um, I'm like, oh, oh. And so I asked my lawyer, I'm like, what happened? You know, and he didn't tell anyone, nobody. And But he had this party. He had other friends. And I'm like, is that ha- – that that piece of disconnected. Yeah. Well, he had to tell someone if they had a party. Did he actually retire? Did he? Yeah, no, he actually yeah. retired, but he had pictures on Facebook. Yeah. But um, by this time, I had, um, you know, I yeah. had had not. You guys were... moved him from Facebook at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, because one of the things he was using pictures and saying that 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 they were. Anyway, I don't even go into that. No, yeah, it was a reason behind it, and and so uh, I mean that was probably the most devastating thing to me is to think that I was there. Yeah, I was there through the whole craziness, yeah. and I know it in a different level than anybody else, and and I don't get to celebrate. I mean, even if I'd filed for divorce, I would. I didn't hate him at all. Yeah. I, I, I I did what I thought he wanted me to do. You know, it's like I he doesn't want to be married. He doesn't want to be accountable. He doesn't want to be responsible. He doesn't want to communicate. So you're telling me you don't want to be married because that's what it what it's about. And he's never correct he never corrected me on that and and but I, I try to keep things as open as possible. But just the fact that, you know, he didn't even tell me that and I couldn't at least close that chapter with him was really, you know, that was that was Difficult to say the least. Yeah, I mean that's just so tough. I mean, I think you captured a lot of what it means to be, you know, military spouse, um, and the challenges that we go through. Because you're right, the the deployment, even when you do get to talk, and it's very rare. Right. Um, I mean, it's a little easier now with the technology, yeah. but but you know, in the early days of the, especially, um, you know, back when after nine eleven when we first started going, it was very difficult. I remember I had to have a sat phone when I was in Afghanistan, and so it was every once in a while. But you would talk, and then but you didn't have anything to talk about. Well, that and was it. And you're just kind of like, wow, you know. Um, again, we, you know, at that point we didn't have kids. It's I took real. I know I took real pleasure in hearing the everyday goings on of my kids, especially in the yeah. later deployments. It, it makes a big difference if you have yeah. children. If you don't have children. Like I said, it becomes administrative. Yeah, and it, it all really becomes, does. Yeah. yeah, and one of the things that I wrote was um, Operation Ho-Ho, Hell No. Yeah. <laughs> that was um, that was like for Christmas, for the holidays. So um, for the holidays, you know, you would, you, would, you would go back and forth and email and like, here's my Christmas list and I got everything for people. And, and you'd have that all, all set up. And next thing you know, you got a box in the mail that you didn't expect. And it's all this stuff that he sent back that now you have to incorporate and now he wants you to go fly you know on christmas he wants you to arrive at his home with his family on christmas day give out presents but then first thing that morning you know the 26 you got to fly back to your family and give up presents that's why i said we called it operation ho-ho to deliver because he hand deliver his presents so the presents that we bought, but but the ones that he sent from the from the Middle East, yeah, yeah. had to be handed from him because he had little you know notes and everything. That's why I said it was, it was never about you know Christmas anymore. And it wasn't about family. It was this constant busyness and delivering, 
And the other thing I put on there was called, you know, the boomerang addresses. Yeah. And that's where the military um, people ask, you know, well, what's his address? I want to send him a care package for the holidays. So you have to be very careful about that. So, you know, talk to him. He talked to his command. They found a generic email address that they could send stuff to, you know, the um, generic meaning it would come to the to the base, to a specific point at the base without yes. people. Yeah. yeah, it was like an APO. Yeah, it was an APO address, but it was one that, that they can con- uh, control a little bit better. So, um. So, so I remember I gave out that address to, um, th- this is his address if you want to send something. So he's, he's p- putting in his orders, right, to me. He wants this, this, these types of cookies. He wants this type of cakes. He wants this. So I'm, I'm baking, 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 sending all of this stuff. Plus I'm working full time, right, and I'm doing other things. So I mail that all out. And so we talk, and I said, did you receive it? And he goes, no, not yet. And then a couple of weeks later, did you receive it? No, not yet. And he says, you wouldn't believe the amount of stuff that we've received here. And then I get an email from a friend who said, here is a bona fide address of somewhere you can send stuff to the troops. And it was the address that I had given out to someone else. That's why I call it the boomerang address, because it goes all the way around. It comes back to you. So he was so inundated with stuff, he never got my package Mm -hmm. because there were so many packages coming in so that somebody else now is opening them. And they're not even, they're just like, you know, divvying up the stuff. So he never saw what I sent because... And it was like, oy vey. Yeah. I'm not Jewish, but oy vey. <laughs> it's just tough. It is. It's tough. It's not, and it's not for everybody. And it does make it hard. And you do change. And so I, I get it. I mean, yeah. I totally get it. But they, they had want for nothing. I will say that that they had, they had want for family. They had want for a lot. But as yeah. far as you know, um, Christmas cheer and stuff like that. Well, was, you know, so moving away from that a little yeah. bit. I, I've, obviously, there's there's just so much in that, and obviously, I relate because I did deployments and my mm-hmm. wife was there, and um, and it was tough. Um, and you do have to, to you know, and, and not everybody makes it through that, like you said. Yeah. And so the communication is so key. But you know, here you are, though. You're super, you're obviously very successful. You've uh, you, I mean, getting a job at the UN where you're putting together an apartment that it, you know. M- getting something from scratch where basically you're uh, I mean for for all intents and purposes tell me if I'm wrong on this you, you, your department you really kind of screen all these air carriers throughout the world right that to, to um, uh, make sure that they meet certain uh, guidelines for UN people to travel on is that no, right we're just assessing them against yeah. a standard do you, do you um, have to fly all these carriers no no, no no we, we I was going to say can. so do you, do you I mean how much do you travel from where you are are you just making assessments and then well I traveled in the beginning because yeah. in the very very beginning I said in order for me to set up a baseline assessment to even think through how do you baseline global air operators I kind of like need the worst case scenario and set that kind of a baseline because you're always going to have to do additional um, um, second and third tier um, assessments for certain certain areas of the world. But there has to be a standard baseline. So to establish that first baseline, I said I need the worst case scenario. And I was not prepared. uh, Neither was no nobody was prepared, but they sent me to Somalia to set the baseline yeah. because that was the worst case scenario. But I learned so, so much from that trip on on what the expectations are because if you're flying in Somalia, you know, you're flying in, in very extreme, diverse, unpredictable conflict areas, but you're also flying in very difficult um, environments, 
you know, they've got the winds, it's, you know, the, the, the drought and, and such. So most of the runways are unfinished. There's no civil aviation authority whatsoever. So, you know, a lot of times you have to make two or three passes around your, the landing strip, you know, one pass to clear the kids because it's now their soccer field mm-hmm. another another pass to make sure the goats get off, you know, and I remember, you know, meeting with a few people and I, um, in Somalia and, and they were always explaining, they were always anti putting a fence around the, the runway. And so I asked the question, you know, well, why do you think that the, you need a fence around the runway? And they said, well, to protect the runway. And I'm like, no, no, that's not why we put a fence around the runway. We have to put a fence around the runway to protect the goats. That's why there's a fence there. Because if the goats get on the runway by accident and, and they take off running because goats you know, move very unpredictably, we don't want to risk hurting the goats. And before they had always heard that it was, you know, protecting the, the airplanes. And, but those are clan lands. And so those are owned by multiple families for. Yeah. So reframing the problem. Right. And yeah. so that's one thing, you know, um, that, that's one of the things that we have to do the most is you always have to take the time and understand the culture of where you're, that's where, hard. where you're discussing. And then you have to think, Luckily, you know, because I come from humble beginnings, you know, I come from, you know, an area, you know, my... my yeah, I wouldn't call Campbellsville, Somalia, though. That's, that's a different... No, yeah. but we have a family farm. That was my grandmother's yeah. grandmother's yeah. farm. And so I get it. If, if if Kentucky suddenly went through a drought and... Although I'm which, sure many Manhattanites probably think of Campbellsville, Kentucky is not much different than Somalia. I'm sure a lot of people in that area would think <laughs> you know, it's the same. I, you but, talk about people that grow up in the city and they're like, oh my gosh, Kentucky. <laughs> but it, it's, it's the same in the sense that this is family land. So let's say you can't, yeah. you can't farm it anymore. Yeah. There's no money there. So every farmer in America faces this. Do you walk away from what your family's set up and designed because it's not working right or do you plug ahead and keep trying to find some way to make it work and that's what's happening in in Somalia they're staying in Somalia because they don't want to give up their land if they walk away from it well then there there are no deeds you know they don't have a you know the the government is is the, the land ownership is all talk story right Go back to Hawaii. Yeah, talk story. It's, it's all talk story. That's so, so funny. So it's the same. And so if they walk away, they lose everything that their ancestors ever walked. So so when you talk again, back to Hawaii, talk about the Ainas and, and the ancestral thing. I, I get that. And it would be so difficult for our family to walk away from our family farm, which is my grandmother's grandmother's farm in Medcalf County, We to walk away from that entirely, to just let it grow up or let, you know, um, you know, people squat or whatever you're not doing justice to all the sacrifices that were made previous to you so that you would have this this land to live off of. yeah and so that's one of the most difficult things and so i think that coming from where i came from that made it a little bit easier to discuss and, and understand from somali's point of view because they all anywhere in the world so i've been you know a variety of very high conflict areas and difficult areas but that's where the UN's going. Yeah, there's two things that are the same anywhere in the world. Number one, mommies love their babies, daddies love their kids, and they want the best for them. And then the second thing is they all have hope. And when you remove that hope and you remove that ability for them to think, to to even think that they have hope, yeah, 
that's that's so detrimental and that's one thing that the UN really does is that's why I hate to hear whenever the UN has to evacuate it just it just hurts my heart because we're basically removing our humanitarians because we can't keep them safe anymore and that you're saying that that we just don't have hope right now yeah and hopefully we can go back in and so that's why it's so important that you you honor that and so that's why when I was trying to set up this program to begin with and going to Somalia was so impactful because I understood their perspective so what do they need to do to to develop but still retain their how do you how do you explain that they still get to retain their culture yeah. they still get to retain what is important to them and protect what's important to them and so that's why that know, is that. hard hard thing to do every time we are somewhere and i when i say we i kind of mean the western world in a in a way that we're hoping to be helpful right um, there, there is. We have to be respectful, like you said, of uh, of the cultural differences. Mm-hmm. We want that to still remain, right. and yet we're trying to also, um, you know, engender change for the better. That is that is a tightrope for sure. It is a tightrope, and I've just been recently, you know, introduced to the um, the graduation of uh, lesser developed countries. And um, there's several that go through this graduation, and it's a really, really big deal because these countries means that they they have worked really hard, and that they have achieved something that is just amazing. You know, yeah. when you think about it, because they have met economic goals, they have they have a rule of law that is recognized they have processes and procedures but it's all about evolution but it's not it's about evolution of, of the it's a country. cultural evolution yeah right. mm-hmm. but you also as as the peoples you have to citizens have to evolve yeah. and in the sense that when before you did things a certain way now you have to be open in your own mind yeah yeah and you have to you have to have a, the there has to be a mindset a cultural mindset that is moving towards that That's, right and, and so it so you know a lot of that's the government or or hires up or corporations who have to help them be comfortable with mm-hmm. new strangers coming in new ideas new concepts new ways of doing things and then balance that against not l- losing yeah. your cultural identity That's right, yeah. and so it's so important because when you talk about you know develop you know like you graduating from a developing country you're like it's a whole evolution it's it's the people changing their mindsets as well as the country and the governance changing to adapt to something that the rest of the world can um I'm not going to say can work with, but can um, – you're setting up a baseline yeah. that 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 they can understand, that, that the rest of the world can understand. So you're opening up trade markets and all these other things. So it's a really big deal. When you are – when you're looking at these countries, are you assessing their – what is essentially their civil aviation authority, like our FAA? Or are you looking at specific airlines? Is it Or is it both? It's uh, well. I mean, I don't. You don't the, have to get too into the weeds. I'm just wondering. No, like, I can't get too into the weeds, but um, yeah, I'm just, just, just what so you're the at, listeners yeah. understand what we're talking about. So the Civil Aviation Authority, like like the FAA for for America, yeah. there's um, um, I think there's 183 right now, and so 183 countries that have separate s- yeah have civil aviation authorities. They make agreements with ICAO of how, what are the, the recommended and suggested practices of how to regulate and how to um, implement these safety standards for international um, flight rules, right? And so, so the ICAO 
will monitor the Civil Aviation Authority like they monitor FAA. So the idea is like a parent-child relationship. So if the FAA, the parent, is doing a really good job of monitoring and implementing these safety standards for their children, which are the airlines that are registered to them, then the idea is that the airlines are operating like they have a lick of sense, right? Because their their, their parent, you know, is has punitive actions. Right, they have yeah. other things going on. Um, and so that yeah, they're answerable to regulatory right. structure. Right. And so when you look at so we do use the CAA. We do that is part of the baseline. But there's also this thing where, as a child, you can't necessarily, if you've got a bad parent, you shouldn't have to be penalized as a child. So what can that airline do on its own mm-hmm. to demonstrate their attention to? Um, international flight standards and safety rules. Yeah, and so that's that's the that's the another layer that we look at. So, is there anywhere that you are, that you won't fly? No, there's nowhere I won't fly. Okay, I won't say I won't be scared. Yeah, um, th- it goes back to what you were saying. Like if I was getting on the if I was getting on the plane and there was a lax security compared to what we're used to, you know, would you get on the plane? I, I certainly would. I, I just am, you know, because I have that. Um, that sense of right. I'm just wondering in your experience now that you've been doing this. No, the the, the only thing is is I think as pilots though, I like to be able to look at the aircraft really really well. I like to see who's walking on board. You know, my biggest fear is is pilots who are not trained well or that they're intoxicated. Those those are my yeah. bigger fears. Um, yeah, because we're we're from that community, so we know right. the kind of knuckleheads yeah. that are it's up like, there, I man. See you. Yeah, I it's you. like I say that to my wife all the time. She's like, "Yeah, they're trained too." I'm like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. but they're chuckleheads just like me. I don't know what they've been up to, man." <laughs> well, if, if you I don't know gotta, if he's in a bad mood, I don't know if his crew coordination is going to be right. all out the window. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's why you look for really good, you know, the civil aviation authorities yeah. to see what they, how they've monitored the pilot training and yep. such as that. But then when it comes down to it. You know, it's still a personal relationship. So yeah. I li- I like it when pilots will stand outside and and greet and say hello. Yeah. So you can like you know, this is who you're carrying. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, or in the case of having my my kids with me, like. Yeah. Yeah. I got people who love me. Yeah. I got people who rely on me. You know. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm going to be praying for you. And um. <laughs> yeah. I still say a prayer. I, I'm a, I'm a bad flyer, by the way, Elisa, as a passenger. <laughs> I'm a really bad passenger. I get oh worried. God. And people are like, you're a pilot. I'm like, yeah, and that's exactly But you're not why. in control. <laughs> because I went through aviation safety course as well, and so I've gotten to listen to all right. the black and box recordings. And I don't know these yeah. guys or girls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I'll tell you what, Lisa, this has been a lot of fun. I know uh, we're running up on time here, but uh, and I could probably keep talking, but uh, thank you so much for coming today. Oh, it's been and my telling honor. Story. I know. I, I feel like we just touched the wave tops of all of this. I, <laughs> Uh, you know, there's so many details I want to get into, but uh, but maybe we can uh, maybe you can come back on another time. We'll we'll talk yeah. more. If you if you listen back and there's something you want to hear more about, yeah. just I hope it's not cruise ship days, but. <laughs> Hey, that's, that would be a great oh podcast, by the way. I was all ready to go into that. <laughs> that um, seriously, listening to that Anthony Bourdain book was um, was just amazing, by the way. You, if, if you haven't read Kitchen Confidential, you should. Yeah, I, I won't eat at buffets. We'll uh, just say that. You, Yeah, as, uh, you know, I'm not even going to say anymore. If, if you get the chance and you've got Audible, download that. Well worth it. We, Me and my wife both were like, wow. So Do you eat at buffets now? So. It depends, but no, not typically. <laughs> One, my my wasteland can't stand it, and yeah. two, yeah, I'm a little older and wiser. But mm-hmm. but now the Sheraton Moana Surf Rider Sunday brunch buffet, mm. absolutely, I will eat there. 
<laughs> so different buffets, right? Uh, exactly. Golden Corral, maybe not. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I hope there's no Golden Corral execs listening and getting angry yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, chocolate pudding should not be fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> And on that, we will uh, we'll call it quits. Uh, but yeah, I would love to have you back in, Lisa. This was really really fun. Thanks. Yep. Thank Thanks you. Appreciate me. it. Hey everybody! Thank you so much for joining us here today again in the Ready Room. Uh, got so much out of today's conversation. If you did enjoy our conversation today, then please hit like. And while you're at it, uh, subscribe to The Ready Room, uh, wherever it is you're getting your podcast today. You can find out more about us online at readyroombrief.com. You can follow us on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram at The Ready Room. Uh, We're also on Twitter at readyroombrief1. I've been your host, Richard Frederick, and on behalf of Chunks and myself, We thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you next time in the Ready Room.